0: Hi, I'm Dr. Jared, and welcome to the Plantastic Podcast, a show for plant killers, green thumbs, and everyone else in between. Listen along as I deconstruct the craft and practices of remarkable horticulturists so that you can better cultivate your plants and yourself. Let's grow. Hey, Plantastic Peeps. It's Dr. Jared, your host here at the Amazing, Engaging Plantastic Podcast. And I'm also the author of Plant Ed, a weekly newsletter dedicated to enriching your plant knowledge and helping you become a better gardener. I hope that your year is off to a great start. I wanted to make a humble request, whether this is your first episode or you've listened to the 24 previous ones too, share this show with a colleague. I love empowering gardeners and horticulturists by cultivating the skills and you need to grow. And each episode of this podcast is geared towards fulfilling that mission. I so appreciate you helping me get valuable information that each guest discusses into the hands of beginners and experts alike. Again, the show is available on all major platforms. And thank you in advance. Before I introduce today's guests, I also want to let you know about a few speaking engagements I have coming up in case you want to stop by and say hi. On February 12th, I'll be speaking to the Charlotte garden club on great plants for the Southeast U S on February 17th. I'll share with the Memphis area master gardeners about perennials with a Southern flair on February 21st. I'll be teaching online in the ecological landscape alliances, virtual symposium on how we can teach people better about horticulture. FYI, they have a discount code of, I'm going to spell this out here. Capital E, lowercase c, zero, capital F, lowercase r, one, lowercase end, two, zero. So that should spell out what looks like EcoFriend 20. And on March 3rd, I'll be at the Philadelphia Flower Show sharing how we can bridge the gap between people and plants. So a lot of exciting events coming up. For this month's episode, I learned from Scott Berline the Manager of Botanical Garden Outreach at the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden. He runs the zoo's botanical garden education programs, including three symposiums. He is involved in most of the department's outreach and plant trialing. Scott is a 1982 graduate of Xavier University, where he earned a Bachelor of Arts in Communication Arts. He is an ONLA Certified Landscape Technician and an ISA Certified Arborist. Scott is also a garden writer and horticultural speaker. He has published hundreds of articles and columns in several gardening and green industry publications, which are great reads if you've never seen his stuff. He currently pens two columns in each issue of Horticulture Magazine, the, as he jokes, hopefully humorous Deep Roots column, and the Garden Views series of interviews, where he interviews people all across the horticulture industry to help share their perspectives with gardeners. Scott is a partner in the long-running and highly respected Garden Rant blog and posts about twice a month. Scott has received recognition for his horticultural efforts, and there's a longer list in the show notes, but I'll highlight a few of them here, including two gold medals and four silver medals from the International Association of Garden Communicators, the 2020 Garden Clubs of America Club Horticulture Commendation, the 2018 Citation Award from the Garden Clubs of Ohio, And in 2012, his garden received the Garden Recognition Award from the Cincinnati Horticulture Society. Scott also serves on a number of boards, including the Spring Grove Cemetery and Arboretum, which having visited there a few years ago, I can say is an incredible place to see mature specimens of trees. And he's also on the Perennial Plant Association's Education Committee. Again, there's a much longer list of everything he's been a part of and is currently part of on the show notes, so you can check those out online. You can learn more about Scott by visiting his website, www.scottberlein.com. So I'm going to spell that out for you. That's S-C-O-T-T-B-E-U-E-R-L-E-I-N.com. By reading his articles on Garden Rant and Horticulture Magazine, you can just Google those for those to come up. And you can also learn from the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Gardens website, where there are additional resources, including event details, trialing program brochures, and more information about the Plant for Pollinators initiative. And that website is cincinnatizoo.org. So again, that's C-I-N-C-I-N-N-A-T-I-Z-O-O.org. This episode was a really interesting discussion about the synergy between zoos and botanic gardens, and it really makes you think about, are there ways that we could graft horticulture in with other areas so that both benefit? Scott's humor and experience comes through in this episode, and I know that you'll really enjoy learning from him. You can visit theplantasticpodcast.com to access show notes and view website links from some of the topics we've covered in this episode. So without further ado, enjoy this Plantastic conversation with Scott Berlein. Hi, Scott, and welcome to the Plantastic podcast. It's so great to catch up today.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm I'm excited.
0: Yeah, me too. So let's kick off this conversation by asking, where did your passion for plants germinate?
1: You know what? I think it was genetic. I come from a, a long line of gardeners, and my dad was a good gardener. He had a really nice rock garden in our backyard growing up. I was not allowed to, to touch it, uh, but I could look and I liked it. I liked it a lot and then around the fifth and sixth grade, we started getting a uh, having a, a vegetable plot a community vegetable plot and and I really loved going out there and just playing planting things and hoeing and just take watering and all, all of that and even forgo. I forgot everybody going to play baseball. And no, I want to, I got to pull all these weeds or whatever. So it it was there, but it disappeared for a while uh, during my high school years. And I like to call it, you know, kind of fell into the, was it drugs, sex and rock and roll kind of youth <laughs> had no luck with any of them, but I sure was trying. And in college, but college, I really settled down, but I didn't have a major. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wound up, falling out of Xavier University with a, a Bachelors of Communication Arts. And that, that gene lay dormant until, oh, only uh, four years after that or something, uh, we got our first house and we had some ground. And I could not leave that ground alone. It, it, I had to turn it over and I started a, a great big, absolutely oversized organic vegetable garden. And we had, we tapped, there were maple trees on the property. We tapped them, we made wine, had a small orchard, grapes. And we did that for, let's say, 87 to 95. So about seven years. And by the time that that rolled around, I was so in deep that I had to escape. So we bought a new house, moved. (laughs) And that's what I learned when I started turning towards ornamental horticulture. And I'm all self-taught. I shouldn't say self-taught because I, I had enormous help pretty much from the get-go with friends who were really good gardeners, and a lot of them professionals. Guy Sternberg and other people like that online were teaching me. And so by, I don't know, by 96 or seven I started a little landscape company to just get by on the side. Eventually, I started writing and publishing a few little things here and there. And in 95, the was it 95? No, it was 2008. So I got a job just, it was a a big recession in 83. And all I could get was a a job for being a uh, reservationist for Delta Airlines. So horrible Mm. job. Absolutely hated. Uh, (laughs) Did it for four years and then went to the airport. The airport was fine. That was a lot of fun, but it wasn't my passion. And in 2008, I had the opportunity to leave Delta to, to pursue my passion full time, which in a couple of years then wound up landing me at the zoo.
0: Hmm. That's an awesome <laughs> that's <a> story.
1: <laughs> i have shorter answers, I promise.
0: <laughs> no, that's great. I love the detail because I think it shows how non-traditional sometimes that we can find our way into horticulture. So I appreciate you sharing that. And
1: I found maybe you have, too, that we're in similar places, different but, but similar, that there's, I don't know if it's new or not, but there are a lot of second career people in horticulture. Even into the, the career age, they're making these changes. And in a lot of ways, many of them are some of the, the best horticulturists, the best people that you can hire. And sometimes we're hiring them into, you know, entry-level jobs. Some and, and you feel bad about it, but they just love it. And it's wonderful to see, actually.
0: Yeah. Do you find people tell you often that are in that type of position, oh, I wish I had done plants in college?
1: Yeah, and that's the way I feel myself. In some ways, I feel like, oh, I got away with not having to learn turf and not having to (laughs) learn some of these things that I have no interest in. But almost every day, something comes up where I wish, and I feel like I have good plant knowledge. I have a pretty good knowledge of the whole field. But there are times when, you know, that I, I, I discover that not having that traditional college experience in horticulture. Left a few things lagging that would be nice to have. But so I do feel like it's great if you're interested. It's wonderful to have young people get in early and know what they want to do. All the, the people I know that are really at the top of the field, this field, horticulture, are people who knew exactly what they wanted to do when they were little kids, sometimes five years older. They're begging their mom or dad for a birthday present. Peter Zale, one of my best friends. For his 16th birthday, he got a variegated aurelia That's a little weird, but it, it, <laughs> look where he is now at Longwood Gardens with a great career. So, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. But you shared earlier that it was genetic. And in preparing for the podcast, I found another interview where you said when you were a kid, you were actually pretending to be out educating people in your vegetable garden yeah, the, and teaching them about growing plants. Every
1: time I tell that story, I feel like such a nerd. But that is, <laughs> I was doing it. I was out. Like in my mind, I was like, this is what you got to do to plant a tomato or whatever the hell I was doing. And I, it's a neat story because fast forward at 20, 30 years and a whole zip past a whole other career. And that's where I landed. I do a lot of communication and teaching and also my degree wound up being used too. So a weird convergence of things that splayed all apart but came back together. So... It's weird
0: yeah is there a reason that you did not decide to do plants in college or was it you didn't know it was a major well, we or we had
1: one of the, what do they call them aptitude test things, and every answer uh-huh. came back actually the thing that came back the highest was i should be a forester which huh oh, that would have been cool but i just my my mom really was thought i should go into business oh. and i said oh you have people skills you shouldn't do one of those careers, and she had all the best intentions, but that, her and school and teachers and a lot of people pushed me in a direction that I was okay at, but I eventually found my way back where I belonged.
0: Yeah. We're thrilled to have you in horticulture because you're doing some amazing things.
1: Everybody I meet in horticulture. I'm trying to think right now of one person I really don't like or have had bad experiences with and i'm drawing a blank but it's just a wonderful field and there's introverts and extroverts maybe a little bit more introverts in horticulture and sometimes you need to work a little bit at getting getting a conversation started or a friendship developing or whatever but it's just such a great field of people it's fantastic
0: yeah amen can you tell us about your role at the Cincinnati Botanic Garden and Zoo? Oh. Or, uh, excuse me, the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanic Garden? <laughs> Wait, you, messed it up. you had it right the
1: first time. <laughs> it's a role. My boss is Steve Foltz. He's the director of horticulture at the zoo. Or the Botanic Who is Garden, also amazing. And, and Steve is a fantastic plants guy. The work that he's built, this resume uh, or body of work he's built over 30 to 40 years is unbelievable. And I, I don't know that there's anybody in the world who has done as much different stuff spread out through the whole field of horticulture as Steve has done. But yeah.
0: uh, I just saw him in November yeah, in Philadelphia. Yeah. yeah, That was a beautiful reunion. Yeah. he's Yeah. He's just
1: a great guy, but he wanted somebody, he felt like we were doing good work at the zoo, but he wanted somebody who was out really outgoing and would just have this burning desire to tell the world about it and, tell the world about how important horticulture is in general. And uh, sometimes I, it took a while to work into that job. I had a vague idea of what he wanted. He had a vague idea of what he wanted. And the horticulture team had a very different view of what they wanted. But we all, it all fell in place. And and, and in some ways, I, I wonder sometimes if Steve worries he's created a monster. But <laughs> um, I just had all these great opportunities to to do talks to big groups and, and to write and just, I'm like that drunk that fell off, that, that got on the wagon and has all this burning desire to to convert everyone. I'm the late comer, I fell, I'm, what, fell off the wagon, got on the wagon, I don't know what, but I just, I, I just love communicating about gardening, what I know, learning what I don't know, just meeting with people, talking with people and just seeing so many amazing things.
0: Yeah. I really love how y'all do education there at the Botanic Garden Zoo. And y'all also do days where you highlight certain things, like you'll have a Native Plant Symposium or a Plant Trials Day. And I know that plant trials are very integral at the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanic Garden Zoo. Can you talk about those a little bit more?
1: Yeah. You have to go back just a little bit about the symposiums. it was Sure. Because, yeah, we started those, the first one maybe it was 2011. 11. And it was like, Steve and I just talking in the office and we got we to get this done. We can do this. And so we had our first symposium and it was a really big success. 260 some odd people, 270. The fire code is 280 in that room. I, we got darn close to it. And, but it was a good day. Everybody loved it. And we're like, okay, let's do another and then another. So we're do, we started out doing three symposiums a year that are drawing some, somewhere around 700 people all together. And this was a time when I would talk to other people around the country at different botanic gardens, and they're like, we can't get anybody to come to our symposium. We're having trouble with this. But we, it's been good for us all along. We had a little hiccup through COVID, but they're gro- doing great. But, yeah, trials is the basis of it all. And At the zoo, they were doing informal, informally doing trials before I got there on everything. So every new project that we have, and, and it's pretty much a continuous series of projects at the zoo we're the oldest zoo second oldest zoo in the country and we're going through a period of 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 reconstruction or reinvigoration or getting some of the old out and being more efficient with new buildings and so forth so there's constantly new plantings going on and and every one of those are okay what new trees can we try here what new shrubs what haven't we got what what can we use that we want to look at see whether it does well or not, and about 12 years ago, maybe longer, maybe more like 15 now, they started tra- trialing annuals every year. They started having tulips in the spring, and it's now up to 100,000. And then where the tulips were, wow. they would take those out and then put the annuals in and started really an official trialing program with those annuals. But since then, that, that was a good success. We've got, we've got great relationships with all of the breeding and growing companies, marketing companies, and so forth and so yeah that was good and 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 getting better and then more formalized the the perennials and we put out brochures every symposium we have someone someone from the zoo is is very likely up there talking about our experiences with plants it's just so important to relate which of the plants are successful we're in a a tough urban situation our soils are terrible we've learned some great ways of, of making better soil when you have Construction project and things, but we figure that's valuable information for people. You know what what will succeed for them in this region, and the more other people succeed based because they got good information from us, the better that is for the community. And then all those benefits start coming. More gardeners come and start planting. Um, More people are excited. When then the health, the communities become more vibrant. And good horticulture does a lot to, to. Make individuals better, families, groups, communities better. Yeah, definitely.
0: What do y'all do to make soil better?
1: Basically, when construction guys are, are are done, they leave, and you've got this heavy subsoil clay left, water, big puddles in it. Construction guys will leave; they'll go, "Hey, we left you some good dirt over there," and you look over and <laughs> clods of clay and and old concrete and rebar in it, and so we, we've learned just to get that out of there. Just get it out. Go deep, if, as deep as you can. You've got some of that infrastructure, gas lines, wire, electric, whatever's under there. But go about as deep as you can with that. Just backfill with with commercial topsoil mixed with a little bit of sand and some compost. And go high with it. Make a nice raised bed with it if you can. A lot of times with big trees, we'll set them on that subsoil, like a, maybe with a a three foot ball or four foot ball set them on there and then just ice the cake with soil around them. So we bring our wow, wow. soil up the grade, And then just as important, maybe more so is we've got that nice loose soil. We don't walk on it. We don't work on it. We put plywood boards down to spread our weight when we plant things in there, keep it nice and loose and we plant heavy, but I'll tell you with that system, if we do that work in June, by August, it is the everything is is grown in so well and established so well. It's almost, I'm a you can almost feel like you could stand there and just watch everything grow.
0: Hmm. What does your commercial blend contain in it for the topsoil? Do you know?
1: Just what you know you buy is is commercial topsoil, which is variable. Here, it's almost always going to be clay, and it's not that great. It doesn't contain a whole lot of organic matter at all what organic matter it has are probably thistle seeds Um, (laughs) but, but add that sand and i think it's like a quarter sand and a quarter pine fines basically our mix it varies from time to time and plant heavy stay off it Fertilize to get something established maybe a little bit in that first first planting with
0: liquid type thing but that's basically it thank you that's very valuable information Going back to the plant trials, what have you learned from doing the plant trials? Not necessarily like this plant's better than this plant, but actually doing the program.
1: It's You look around and the other plant trials in the country, probably the vast majority are universities and in some botanical gardens. Usually they lay them out in squares more like scientifically like you would to truly measure the growth of a plant when out the flowers and things like that but we're also we don't have that room and until recently we didn't have any room like that to use so the zoo is really compact it's only about 75 acres um and a lot of that is infrastructure and, and service and things like that so the room inside the zoo is pretty limited so what we we do is it's display slash trial and what we, over the years, learned that you have a hunch what's going to be successful when you get it. And then you have, you also know that in our region with the clay, with the weather we have, the, the weird weather we have here, it's technically zone six, but goes all over the place. And we have a lot of droughts and some heavy rain, periods of rain. It's all over the place. So you, you know what plants can deal with that, even with the really good soil. And you put those out there because they're on display. We don't want to show anybody's failures. The other plants we take, we put them in, in try them in other areas and hope for, hope that we're pleasantly supplies, or surprised. And a lot of times we are, which is fantastic. But two years ago, three years ago, we put in a giant, uh, basically a two acre botanical garden on, a, on the campus of a, a, a grade school, a couple just a couple blocks from the zoo. And we had some space to do some of the real squared side-by-side trialing. That's where we've gone. Let's overflow. So we're, we can we, we can put in the zoo. We put in the zoo. And uh, what we use there are the things that we think a little worried might not do that well or, or things that we just ran out of room for at the zoo. It, it's a fantastic um, facility to have, and we're very lucky to have it. And it it's... Wonderful that it's one of those big, sort of ambitious, very ambitious community projects. It was funded by the Cincinnati Reds Foundation, so it had big backers behind it: Procter and Gamble, the Children's or Children's Hospital, and others, and a lot of volunteer help putting it in. And it's got us backing it now, so it has real full-time horticulturists maintaining it, staying there, and. And it's just been an awesome place to trial these plants. We've got, I don't know, twenty five named cultivars of pawpaw to trial there, yeah. and other kind of fruits and things too. And the kids are so wonderful; they just yeah. love that. And yeah, different strawberries and things. But we also have. We went in with about twelve thousand plants on this two acres. Everything, wow. was pretty big trees. Some that had to be like a hundred inch tree spade did move some of these things that that were going. to, we're going to be lost at the zoo because of of another project brought over. So we had things like that all the way down to the smallest perennials, uh, a lot of annuals, vegetables, and the fruits I already mentioned. So it's a play it's a playground for us.
0: Yeah, whenever I spoke for y'all a couple of years ago, Steve took us over and toured the garden, mm-hmm. and I didn't know what to expect, but we saw it very early on in inception. I think maybe it was only like a year too old. Yeah. And I was very impressed because one of the things that y'all are good about doing, at least from what I saw coming in from the outside, is that y'all are really good about going beyond your walls. Yeah. And interacting with people in your community, because I feel like sometimes it's like botanic garden, fence, community. And so I do really admire that. Is there ways or are there things that you can share about how y'all do that process of engaging with the community? that might benefit listeners?
1: Yeah, a lot of credit for that probably started with the change of management at the zoo, which started quite a while ago. I'm not even sure how long. And then it really caught on fire with with Mark Fisher. He came on as our VP of Facilities and Sustainability probably around 2011, 2012, somewhere in there. And he is an incredibly ambitious, energetic, charismatic guy. He, he's His big things are community and sustainability. And oh, by the way, he's really good at, at, at planning and engineering too. But he, we had some background where we had problems where we were in a community and we had no interaction with them. And it was literally that zoo slash garden fence community. And he went out breaking barriers. He's at we had a program where we put in led lights for the neighborhood and literally we were knocking on doors we did the same thing with trees we offered trees to avondale that avondale is our community and went door to door sometimes asking if people wanted a tree in their front yard and i'm not talking like a little scraggly thing i'm talking about two inch bmb and so that started to open a lot of doors literally and and figuratively and started getting getting together very good ties with a lot of people, leaders in the community. And it really made a difference. And I think with this garden, one of the reasons it's, just, it's successful is it had financial backing from the beginning. That's big. Uh, it had the sustained support from the zoo. So, so we didn't just build it and leave. And then I one of the things I think is really important with this, and I've seen a lot of community gardens fail ones that people have big hopes for, put a lot of energy into. But it's kind of like they build it, hand it off, and then walk away. And the community doesn't, they're not inspired by it. They don't know what to do with it. And it just becomes a field again. But one of the things I think was really important with this one, we have the food, we have the vegetables, we have the fruit trees and all of that, which is good and important. But there's a ton of beauty there too. You drive by it and there's big, big, masses of color and things in flower and and it's something i think that the community was like that's beautiful we like having that here you can see people bringing their family or friends over to to walk around it it's open to everybody they can go anytime they want so it's really a a special thing and i think there's a lot to learn from that example there
0: Yeah. yeah i hardly agree thank you for sharing that wisdom oh you're welcome So if you could teach a master class on running a public garden integrated with the zoo, so either a semester-long course or maybe a day-long workshop, what are two or three core takeaways that you would want students to take away from what you've experienced? That's a great question because
1: we're a zoo, and our zoo is different. It's, It's old. It's 75 acres. It's surrounded by development. We have nowhere to grow. We have a lot of construction projects going on. We have, uh, our, the community really loves this zoo. Cincinnati, the region really does love it, support it. So we get to do incredibly ambitious and in, in very different types of, of horticulture. So anything from one day we're over there picking fruit or teaching uh, kids a class or putting in uh, 100,000 tulips or following up with annuals with volunteers and then on the next day we might be craning a a six inch b&b tree over a building and down into a new project and the next day we're putting we're in the tiger exhibit putting in refreshing that exhibit with new plants and knowing what we have and and that is compatible with the animals and how to protect the animals and how to protect the plants it's there's nowhere I, i just can't imagine anywhere else where you get a a more diverse you know plate of work to do and it's just always a challenge and it's you're always trying to figure out how do we do this how do we do that but at the same time the way we do soil same every time we're going to do it that way every time because we know it works and every new project even though we run out of spaces for sun plants to try and use sometimes every project is going to have shade trees because that's good for our visitors, and it's great for our animals. And so, with time will lose that sunny spot, and but we know we're going to have another construction project that'll open another <laughs> area up too. It's just a, it's an entirely different kind of horticulture. It's probably like maybe the broadest type of horticulture you can do at any given place
0: at any given time. So Scott, one of our alumni from our program, he works at a local zoo here in East Texas. He had a couple questions that he wanted me to ask, and I thought they would be really good for listeners too. How does the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanic Garden balance the horticulture of the public spaces with that of the animal exhibit space? Who does what work and how does it get done?
1: So we, we do it all, and we're one of the few places too where when a project is being planned, we're in from the ground floor. Steve and some of the guys, Dave and Jerome and others who are involved in the construction projects, will look at the blueprints Go in there, hey, determine, oh, that, that space is too narrow. We couldn't do it, anything with that. You have to widen it out, find out where the inf- infrastructure is, make sure we have our lines for irrigation, whatever else. They're in it from the beginning. And there are no outside landscape companies that come in and do the work. We don't have landscape architects. We know what works because basically Steve and a lot of our staff have been here for so long and have done so many things. The designs are our own. And as far as like balancing the public part, you have those areas and in our zoo, they're pretty substantial where you have garden areas and you're pretty much treating that just like you would any botanical garden. You want to have a great display of plants. You don't want embarrassing spaces. You don't want what we call butt ugly beds that Need complete rejuvenation, might be taken over by uh, honeysuckle or, or something like that. And then the uh, animal spaces, we design and, and do those too. As far as what plants we can use, we know most of it. But if there's a question, it's usually the uh, veter- ven- veterinarians who can tell you, ah, no, you don't want that plant in there. Or it would be really nice if we had this. Of course, the animals beat up the spaces. So you don't have the luxury of a lot of time getting things in there And sometimes you have to protect what you put in so it can get to the right size. But we use a lot of things like Aurelia. And at the same time, we're also trying to make it look like Africa or Asia or wherever these animals are from. And sometimes you're faking it pretty well with native plants. Our Africa savanna project, a lot of grasses, honey locusts, a lot of things that look African, you put them in there. And it turns out like 75 percent of them were native plants. Pretty fun to do. That was one project where we had the luxury of time, because we the animals didn't they they didn't come in for a while after we had everything established, like maybe six or eight weeks. And we used zoysia grass there, and that's held up incredibly well. It got established, and the animals don't really eat it. Even their walking doesn't seem to hurt it. That much that, that's really good. But you do the best you can with animal exhibits. It's always an adventure you go through a certain process. If it's the lions exhibit that you're not where the lions are.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, everybody said you got you sure now? Is that locked out? But yeah, it's <laughs> it's really interesting. We use a lot of bamboo. It's just I don't know, maybe ten or twelve spe- species are hardy here. Maybe more, I don't know. I'm not really good with my bamboo. But we use it for screening a lot. If we have one exhibit on the left that's supposed to be Africa and the other on the right that's supposed to be Asia, you don't want to be seeing one while you're seeing enjoying the other. You want that experience to be different. So bamboo is a great screen for narrow areas, for really any area. And then the keepers like it, too, because they can come and cut it. There's always an abundance of bamboo and we do have it contained, but there's always an abundance of it and they they can cut it. And the animals, it's one of their favorite browse plants. Any herbivore is going to really like bamboo.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Whenever y'all contain the bamboo, do y'all do like the cement?
1: Yeah. It's just, we have a lot of Island beds basically. And spaces that are cut off by a wall or we, our topography is pretty extreme. We're working around walls and retaining things and all, all the time, and yeah, we've never. There's only one area where the bamboo can get out into a lawn, and we keep that mowed, yeah. and we haven't really had a problem with that.
0: Okay, cool. He also wanted to ask: Are there interesting examples of how doing horticulture at a zoo is different, and how do you keep animals safe, comfortable, and happy through plantings and more?
1: Yeah, shading exhibits is really important. We got to make sure we're not putting toxic plants where they can get to them and and, and to some extent with our guests as well. But in the zoo world is is evolving and I'm not really part of the zoo world. So what I'm hearing and what I learn is is tangential, but but the zoo world is doing everything it can to give the best possible care and experience of life to our animals. And when I started at the zoo, I didn't have really any emotions or thoughts about whether zoos were good, bad. But now I've been there for 12 or 13 years. And it really is amazing how good the care is that the animals receive, how much they're loved by their keepers. And we had that experience with Fiona, the, the hippo, which I would highly recommend that all your listeners check out on Google. Just Google Fiona, and about 3 million heads of Fiona will come up.
0: <laughs>
1: and what a, a lesson that was. Just saving that little baby hippo from a preemie birth to now she's a, an adult of mating age. and It's just a fantastic thing. But the, zoo, the zoos have an organization called the, I guess it's the AZA, American Zoological Association. And they share everything they know back and forth about what feed animals thrive on, what the best enrichment for them is, what the proper spacing amount of space is, and a lot of other things. And it, it all gets applied. And we're at the tail end of that 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 chain of knowledge. So when we're putting a, an exhibit in, we are the consumers of a lot of that information and can make the best use of it. And it's really interesting. It's it, it it's like nothing else in the world. You, this, and it's this wonderful combination. And I, I don't know why other zoos don't do the botanical garden thing and most of them don't there's not that many that do and because it tells a it gives your your visitors a much much better experience Mm -hmm. it's better for your animals because they're benefiting too and then you're telling the story of life on earth you got the plants here and the animals there and all the zoos are big into education and it's just right there in front of you to see and use um it's startling. It is appalling. Appalling I, that how, how few zoos really go that extra effort. I don't think it costs that much more. You just need a committed horticulture department that knows what they're doing and is eager to do it and willing to do different things, try hard.
0: Yeah. Do you think it's part of that phenomenon of plant blindness where people focus on and pay more attention to the animals than they do the plants typically? And so, The plants are just cast aside.
1: No, I think like most of the people who run zoos either come out of the zoo's education department, which is that whole education world, or through administration, or come out of the animal department. And they just, it it could be that they, they have plant blindness, but I think a lot of them are just very focused on what they do. An animal department guy that works his way up and is now running a zoo that's what he knows best, and that's what he sees, and that's mm-hmm. where the resources go. And it's a distraction. You want to do what? You want to do a botanical garden? Why? I think we've we just got ArbNet level four accreditation this yeah. year, which I
0: remember you mentioned that. That's awesome. Yeah,
1: and part of that was putting together all the things we've done, what we plan to do, how it all fits together what it means to the community and the public and so forth. All these things we've been doing that were never in a single document. And I think that was an eye-opener for a lot of people, and probably for our administration and our board, and just reinforced what we're already doing. Everybody's on board with it. Everybody likes what we do. When the AZA people came to recertify the zoo a number of years ago, the comments from them were just incredibly encouraging. They were just, this is the most beautiful zoo we've been to. This is wonderful. And then with our administration, just to be totally candid, we're getting all those comments. We're getting, it does look beautiful. And they're ask, and we're asking to do more. And they're asking, why do we need more? We all, already look great. And it's a fair question to ask. And, and we do have great answers for it. And I think we're moving that way. We're not moving that way too fast. We're not moving that way too slow. But we are moving that way.
0: Yeah. Uh, can you also explain ArbNet for people who are not familiar with that? Yeah. I don't
1: know how long ago. It was fairly recent, maybe five years ago, maybe a little longer. Uh, the Morton Arboretum established the ArbNet uh, level of accreditation, which uh, you can get one levels one through four. And it's based on collections and policies and uh, builds its way up to what education programs you're doing and what uh, research you're doing. And it's a lengthy process. It's a challenging application, but we're really proud that we got level four on the first try. They also have been, and I don't know how far back this goes either, either, but they also establish an association with uh, BGCI, which is Botanical Gardens Conservation International, I believe. So they do a lot of research and conservation work around the world, and they combine their application process so that if you get through it and you get level four, whatever level you get with r you also get botanical garden accreditation with BGCI. So we got both. We Literally, there was a little bit of mix up with how the data was moved from the Morton to BGCI, and there was a hiccup there. But we literally got our, our formal confirmation of the BGCI part of it within the last two weeks. So we have that too. And this opens up a whole world for you. That level of of accreditation impresses people who are in this world or or who are managing grants and research projects and things. So uh, we're really proud of that, really proud of that. And it's now for us, it's yeah, we can sit back and go, wow, we got it. Yay. But it's also a tool to leverage doing more in the future.
0: Yeah, congrats again on that. That's an awesome achievement for y'all. I'm proud. Yeah. So besides doing things at the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanic Garden, you're also very active beyond in the world of horticulture. You do a lot of garden talks, and then you're also a prolific writer, writing for Garden Rant, as well as Horticulture Magazine, and who knows what else. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us about your process of how you write things and come up with ideas about how to share information?
1: Yeah, my process is basically wind up late on a deadline and scramble like hell to get you know, something to come. <laughs> Luckily, I, I don't have problems uh, with ideas for things. I usually have four or five ideas in my brain coming and going. I forget things, and then they come back, and uh, I don't always have the chance to write them down. It's usually in the car when something comes to mind. And I just try to retain it the best I can. But uh, yeah, the uh, process, and the other thing, if I run out of ideas, if that ever happens, I I have something like probably 75,000 photos I've taken wherever I go, whatever horticulture is around, I'm taking pictures of it, botanical gardens, wherever, you know, and all I need to do is just go to my pictures, sort through a little bit, and then suddenly there's an idea. It's for me. It's not something I'm soliciting the talks. If they come to me, I say yes unless I, I there's just no way to do it. Um, but I'm not out there. Hey, I need talks. It's a side thing for me. My my main job is the zoo, and writing is on the side too. With Garden Rant, I love it. You got the support there of the other partners, and I like. I think it's a great site. I think people really enjoy it. It's the opinion side of horticulture that you get there. So there's always something there that really get you mad or make you happy or, um, you know, because it's opinion, it, 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 it engages people pretty well. And I always try to add humor um, as much as I can. Um, so my process, you know, in, in the Hoarder Culture Magazine um, columns I do, the one is an interview column, which I'm really happy you'll be doing uh, for me here in a, in a little bit. I love to interview uh, people in the industry. As, as someone who has a second career and it just considers myself blessed every, every day for this new life that I was able to come to, I feel like I'm more in tune with what regular gardeners see and feel and, and their experience with gardening. And, and so with that column, basically, I've asked everybody that's a, a good mover or shaker or influencer in this industry somehow over a wide broad of different topics and things that they do. And I've been very fortunate. Really no one has turned me down for it. So with Michael Durr and Alan Armitage and then Jimmy Turner, Nancy Buley, Tony Avent, John Grimshaw, Dan Hinckley. We've, wow. Nice. Yeah. Basically just been blessed with this great, a list of subjects. I use that word subjects. It's no, they're not subjects. They're my friends. They're colleagues in horticulture, and the whole purpose of talking to them is to give the regular gardener kind of a sneak peek of the people, the players, the movements, the processes of how the industry works and how designs come about, and and, and how that influences what influences what plants are at the garden center or. At the botanical garden, or just giving them an understanding of things that's mostly a mystery to them, I think, and gives them a better understanding of, you know, how I can garden, what I can do better, and then uh, the other column is the uh, last page, and uh, and it's just basically a humor column, but I I like to use it to like, kind of spread the feeling. Most times, spread the feeling that, hey, we're all gardeners we experience these failures and then crazy successes. And we have these feelings of inferiority or and just make light of it. And I don't know, hopefully subliminally just shift the idea that you have fun with this. Sometimes mm-hmm. we'll have obstacles and, and we'll have pain and, but we will have successes too. And, 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 and what we're doing is meaningful not just for us to have a little garden and maybe show it off and enjoy it ourselves, but what all of us gardening together can do uh, to make the world better.
0: Well, I think that's great because too often I think that people get so into gardening that they forget that they should be having fun. <laughs> you,
1: you, yeah, if you're passionate, you can get into it. Exactly. Heavy that You get to that overwhelmed stage. And I understand that more than anybody on the planet.
0: Yeah. yeah. So continuing on with that thought, are there systems and processes you use on a daily or weekly basis to help center yourself as a horticulturist?
1: Yeah, I've got to admit, I'm underwater half the time, I'm late on deadlines, (laughs) I've got a million things going on, stray things that I I can't forget and do forget and got to bring back and fix and do, and that's with my job at work, that's at home here with my own garden, that's with the writing I do and the talk, the talks I do, it all feels like that. And I think the thing that centers me the most is one thing I do almost on a daily basis, sometimes two, three, four, five times, is go out and walk my garden, see what's changed, just have a quiet minute and just walk around and, and return to myself and see the work that I've done and the plants I've got and just the wildlife that comes and goes and just have that 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 peaceful moment that you built the garden for in the first place, in a lot of ways. That's the intention people have when they build a garden. And I don't think that everybody does it so much. And I think that's, for me at least, it's a a wonderful, wonderful thing. And, And at the zoo, this year I haven't had a lot of chance to get in the zoo and walk around because of my back issue. But the same thing, just when it gets to be too much, put it down, leave the office, go walk around, go enjoy the beauty, see the plants, and see how the people react to the plants. Because you do see that if you're looking for it. In my talks, I like to show pictures of people taking pictures of their kids. And it's always in front of the tulips or in front of the beautiful flowers. Not in front of the animals. That's a different experience. But the Kodak moments are always with plants. And I think there's significance to that. I don't always... Know what it is. I, I, I'd like to scratch it a little harder and get a little deeper, but I really think that's a truth that, that I want to explore and figure out a little bit.
0: Yeah, that's rich. Yeah, yeah. I one time in a talk, I was talking about how there's something about people wanting to immerse themselves in a landscape like that. If you go to the Grand Canyon mm-hmm. or the Smoky Mountains, like or standing in front of a bed of tulips, there is something about experiencing that and immersing yourself in that. That's what most- Taking taking a picture to capture it.
1: Yeah, that's what most of my talks are about is a lot of urban forestry, how those street trees change
0: communities.
1: When you have some plants and and some horticulture in front of businesses, how it it betters those businesses. People come, they stay longer, they might buy more. For human health, there's a hospital on the west side of town here and all the new hospitals are doing some version of this, but this particular one is like a three-acre green roof and other horticulture that every patient room looks out on. And there are these studies where if patients are looking out on a garden or on nature of some kind, they heal faster, less side effects, fewer drugs, better just all around outcomes. From just having that look at it, that that connection and like i said i've got a a complete talk like a two-hour talk crammed into a one-hour talk on that whole subject but it's what drives me it's how do we you look at a neighborhood and you go past and there's just so many houses that just get by just have what the expected foundation plants are and maybe a tree and that's it yeah and you go through and you look at it and you're like okay this is not the worst thing in the world but how can this be approved? And it's, it wouldn't be that hard if one fifth, one out of five of those houses put in a little pollinator garden and another put in maybe another shade tree and another uh, house put a little water garden in or, or whatever. Suddenly you've taken okay to much, much better, not only for people, but for the ecosystem. Now you've got pollinators coming and that brings in birds and, and so much more. And you think about like people's property. It's this big privilege that ordinary middle-class people did not have maybe 100 years ago or 200 years ago. So it's this privilege to own land that, that, that at one time only went to the most elite of the elite and they guarded it closely. And now we have it. And this is our chance to do conservation at home, to do something better for this world with our little piece of land. You might not think it matters much. And just one doesn't. But if you start doing more and more, it adds up. And I look at things like communities that are near a really good botanical garden or really near a great nursery. And you notice right away, man, this community has got it going on. they got more ambitious and better plantings. And that's all it took was access to those ideas, access to those plants. And we could do that everywhere. Uh, We just need to spread that vision of let people know that by doing these things, I'm benefiting myself and, and the world.
0: That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So wrapping up with some rapid fire questions. Oh boy! Yeah. 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 Fa- Do you have a favorite horticulture book or books?
1: I'll go back to one that's probably, I don't know, 40 years old. I don't know how old it is, but Hugh Johnson's principles of gardening or is it principles of horticulture? Um, it's a new one to me. Really? Oh, it, yeah. I, hopefully I've got his name right. Hugh Johnson. He, he's also a wine critic. He's still alive, I think. He's still writing. But it's a great book that, like, gives you the whole picture of horticulture. So it's got, like, a section on the plant hunters and the history of horticulture and, and the other sections of how pollination occurs and how breeding occurs. It covers the gamut in just a very readable way with great pictures. There's all kinds of different editions now. There's paperbacks. and I'm not sure if it's in print, but you can find it used for sure. And I highly recommend it. It's just a great book.
0: That's cool. Is there a horticulture challenge that you're facing right now or one that you have faced recently and come up with a solution to it? Yeah. It's
1: like how to garden with a bad back.
0: <laughs> you know oh, yeah
1: so yeah I, my world might be changing on what i'm able to do and so oh, i'm, I'm looking at that. this ambitious garden where i used to be able to just pick up a rock all these things and yeah, yeah this fall is this whole year has been bad with that but the fall was the eye opener when you really gotta get out there and do some things and i'm finding i can still do them it's just i have to do them differently i have to spread it out and it's not the worst thing in the world it, it's it's a change but it, it slows me down but slowing down isn't is, it, it has its benefits too and you experience yeah. and feel the garden in a different way when you're slowing down like that.
0: Yeah. Is there a garden myth that uh, <laughs> is there a garden myth that's out there and people believe it but your experiences or research has shown otherwise that it's not true
1: yeah i have to think about that because i don't normally think that way about gardening and things but I think that you hear all the time that, oh, if you plant a little tree, it establishes better and grows faster and better than a big B&B that you might have two inch or something. And, if, and they catch up. And I just haven't seen that. We do a lot of both um, at the zoo. Mostly we do go in with bigger size plants because you need to make that impression with a, a project. You want it to look yeah. established. So we're going in with some anything from two to six inch caliper. Trees sometimes, and and then also like on the, my other world of urban forestry or forestry groups, we'll put in a hundred seedlings, three-year seedlings, whatever, in a project, and I I just don't see that that the the smaller trees outperform the bigger trees, and I know it's just spread around there. I've never seen the science on it where that argues the other way. But that's just what I've seen for sure.
0: No, I've heard that too. And one thing that comes to mind for me is when I interned at the Scott Arboretum years ago, they had planted Nissas, mm-hmm. Tupelos, and they commented on how these established faster because they were smaller than the ones that they, like you said, balled and burlap in. So I wonder if it's like one of those things where, like, some of them that taproot quickly. Yeah. That may be the case, but then some of the other ones that don't do that. I don't know. I'd like to see some research on that. Yeah, it's a good point
1: anybody's really done like side by side comparisons. I do like bare roots, small plantings in, in some ways because you can really get that that root system spread out in the bicycle yeah. spoke way that you really want to. And I think that's great for the long-term and whether it, it, it grows faster than a two inch tree next to it or not, I, that's almost beside the point in some ways because you don't always need that quick growth. I do like the idea of having that great root system established so it yeah. just it depends on the project what you do. You can't go into a restoration project with a hundred two inch B and Bs. You got to start with the little trees. And but yeah, it's just one of those things that that you hear and hear and hear, and I just
0: haven't experienced it. Interesting. Thanks. Is there something out there in the world of horticulture that you feel like knowledge is lacking on and needs to be shared more? Everywhere. All, all plants everywhere. All yeah, plants all the time <laughs> everywhere. It's one
1: of those fields where the more you learn, you, you're, you, the more you learn, the more you're constantly learning that there's so much more to learn.
0: Yeah. You, Let's get specific for a moment. <laughs> What's one thing you think needs to be shared more about?
1: Oh, man. Soil. And that's an wow. obvious one to a lot of us who do gardening. But just the importance of establishing a really good, fluffy, organic matter-rich soil before you start a garden, that's going to be your success. That's 80% of having a successful garden is having doing the work in the beginning to get a good soil,
0: a good bed built. Yeah. So many people overlook that.
1: Yeah. And, and the other thing I think too is it comes down to trials and things is know that these resources are out there for you to, to go online or go in person to gardens and things and see what's successful what a good plant for your region is. Because a lot of people go to the box stores or what, and they have some good plants, but they also have some things that are ridiculous for our region. A lot of them have all the Eric Casey plants, the the rhododendrons and azaleas and heaths and heathers and pieris and these beautiful plants that look great in a pot in the the garden center. And they bring them home, plant them in our limestone-based soil, compact mm. and they fail and they think I can't garden I'm just not any good at this and it really was never their fault it was that they didn't come home with plants that are going to succeed so that's the value of trialing programs we have our brochures online or visiting gardens and the closer the, the better for your your conditions yeah you can go to who has a, a good was it Colorado State has a great trialing program. And it's amazing how many of the plants that do well for them do well here, too. But their conditions are completely different. So mm. I wouldn't start there for their plants, plant list. I'd start with, unless you live in that area, of course. If you live in Cincinnati, you want to look at, at what's doing well at, at the trialing programs or the botanical gardens or just other gardeners, what they're succeeding with. And hopefully the nursery is doing the garden centers. Independent garden centers are, are almost always run by people who know the region, know the plant, right? and they're going to give you a better selection and better help if you're not asking them on Mother's Day weekend. If you don't would <laughs> or not, off the charts busy and just ask them what they, what they recommend for things, that, that can go a really long way to helping you succeed at your, with your garden.
0: Second to last question I always ask on the podcast, propagating horticulturist. What can we do to share the love of plants and help engage more people with horticulture?
1: That's such a big question because a couple of years ago, I was really down on horticulture because it just seemed like no students were coming into the programs. And you talk to people at the big schools, the schools that have had horticulture pr- programs forever, Ohio State or uh, Purdue, and Cornell, all these schools. And, and, and some of them were just closing down their horticulture department. Others were changing them, rearranging them. Gearing on landscape architecture, which is a different field, but a good one, but different. Um, and it just seemed like nobody, none of the kids were interested. They didn't want to do the kind of work. And But that's changing, I think. I'm feeling like there's a, a, a wave of, of young people who are more interested in coming into those programs again, which is really nice. And that second wave of second career people, too, which is really yeah. Cool. But I think the key, when you talk to people my age and maybe even your age with about when or how they became interested in horticulture, it almost invariably comes down to, oh, my grandma had a garden or, you know, my my family gardened. And they had that exposure to good horticulture when they were young and and could see and experience what what they could have uh, and what they could do with their lives. And uh, I think the key is getting to younger people. You know, trying to get them nowadays when they're, they're, they're high school ages and, and they're already programmed, I think. I think, and I don't know the way to do it. I think having a zoo in a botanical garden where you have a trillion kids coming through every summer, every day, and exposing them to terrific horticulture is an awfully good way to do it. But, yeah, the, and that's part of why it's important for neighborhoods that house to do better they do better with the common space because these are where kids are going to be exposed mostly to good gardens and can feel it and know what it is and maybe you have ambition for it
0: yeah thank you for that last question how can people learn more about you and the cincinnati zoo and botanic garden
1: Okay, invite me to come speak. Read, you can read my stuff on online. The, the, the garden rant is all out there on online. Obviously, it's a blog site, and almost everything, or a lot of what I've done for Horticulture Magazine, is available. Um, and I have my own website, which I never do anything. So it's it's this old rickety thing that that <laughs> somebody's gonna pull down for. Uh, of input, but uh, maybe one day I'll get around to do more with it. The zoo has a really good website. We're working on it to get more information there. So if you go to the Cincinnati Zoo website, there's a gardens tab, and that'll uh, connect you with all of our events, all of our brochures that came out of our trialing program, our pollinator program, which is really cool, we'll Plant for Pollinators. It's getting families and people to plant pollinator gardens and register them. And give you know, with a newsletter and information and things like that, it's really good. So that's there now. And, and we are ex- you know, really hoping to expand it in the next coming years with some really cool, just basically practical information on how region, what you can do to succeed with your garden, what plants you can use, techniques.
0: Well, thanks for sharing those links. I'll be sure to put those in the show notes. And again, Scott, thank you so much today for your time. This was a really engaging conversation, seeing how y'all do things at a botanic garden and zoo, and also seeing your passion for plants and horticulture come alive. So again, thanks for being on today.
1: I was a privilege to be here. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you for asking.
0: Yeah, yeah. And until next time. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening today. Do you have questions or comments? You can visit theplantasticpodcast.com for show notes and to reach out and say hi. Remember, plants can't talk, but we can. The plant world needs people to share how wonderful these green organisms are. So tell someone a fun fact about plants. Make it simple. Make it remarkable. And most of all, make it plantastic. Until next time, keep growing.